What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. With stage four cancer, my boobs are trying to kill me. They plan this game, they dream that I'll be low at six feet. Let's talk of chemo cocktails that taste like milk. We spent our doctor's court and life upside down for me. My nosy boobs get involved in all my body parts. Spine, liver, skull, they snitch just like a knock. When I first found out that I had cancer, before I knew it was stage four cancer, I felt um, relieved, almost excited, elated. I think even the doctor himself said to me, I don't think I've ever had a patient like you that when I tell them the news that they have cancer, that they actually smile and say, whoa, I'm relieved. I'd rather have cancer than be crazy. Welcome to My Boobs Are Trying to Kill Me, a stand-up, speak-up podcast. It's an ongoing conversation that shares the medical journey of Carla Stevens Tolstoy as she battles stage four cancer, sharing her story from all sides of the disease, her life, and the people she's been fortunate enough to surround herself with throughout this journey. I'm your guest host, Peter Anthony Holder. If you've listened to any of her regular Stand Up Speak Up podcasts, then you already know that the interview subjects are handled by Carla. But this time, the shoe is on the other foot. Carla is the subject of this program, and as she says, her recent diagnosis of having stage 4 cancer was to her a relief. Since Carla is the interviewee, that means someone else has to be the interviewer. That role falls to Erin DeYoung, who is pulling double duty. Not only is she conducting the interview, she is also a registered practical nurse for Nurse Next Door. She is Carla's nurse. Why would you say that you feel happy about having cancer? Most people would be sad or depressed. Like, why would you feel happy? I think I felt happy and relieved because for the past two years, maybe even three, as long as four years ago, I could feel something changing in me and I didn't know what it was. And slowly my my body started to act differently. It, it almost felt like there was an alien growing inside me. And I told this numerous times to my husband and then we'd go to see the doctors and the doctors would say, well, we've done an x-ray. We even went as far as paying to go to Buffalo to do MRI because I was convinced I had a tumor in my head. It came back, no, you're all clear. We went to multiple doctors and they were all pushing me the direction towards mental health, saying that all these things I'm feeling and these changes and why I'm sleeping all the time and why sometimes, you know, I get confused or there's something that's just different about me, I would just get the feedback that I'm depressed. So, and, and, I, and, I, and it's easy to believe you're depressed. You know, I went even to a gynecologist who I explained my symptoms of being tired all the time, being achy, not being myself, um, feeling sad because I didn't understand what was going on with me. She put me on hormone therapy for premenopausal, which was estrogen. 
And for everybody out there, estrogen is actually one of the things that makes my cancer grow and spread. I mean, it just loves estrogen as much as a heroin addict loves heroin. I mean, you're just feeding it. And on top of that, you know, I had uh, dealt with my pain secretly, telling people, yeah, I felt pain, but almost embarrassed because pain to me felt like I was out of shape. And there were many times where, you know, I'd be doing a physical activity and say, oh, sorry, I can't join in because I, you know, I worked out earlier or I just feel tired. And then even this summer, going for a swim with my two sisters, and I couldn't keep up to them and I couldn't keep up to them at all. They were so far ahead of me and I had to quit and go in. We were swimming around my parents' island, um, which is probably, you know, like a two-kilometer swim. I'm sure somebody will be correct me on that. But, you know, I did probably half a kilometer. I went back into my parents' cottage, got in our boat. We live on an island, went home and was in bed for three days. You know, and going to parties, not able to wear heels. I know that seems silly, but I couldn't even get into heels without my my back being in excruciating pain, going to events, not being able to sit in the chair for long, having to leave, which seemed very antisocial, which was rude. In many cases, I was rude. I'd be like, oh, sorry, you know, I had a long day. Do you mind if I lay down on your couch? I mean, it got to that I didn't want to go out anymore. Like I was like, I don't want to have to explain people I have pain because everybody would say to me, oh, I get back pain too. I get neck pain too. You know, you have to work out more. You have to stretch it more. You can't be on your phone as much. You can't watch TV as much. I mean, people would give me all their feedback and advice. And I just like wanted to stop telling people that I had these issues because I was like, what's the point? I'm just going to get everybody saying, yeah, I know I have it too. And so I did everything that a self-help book says to do based on me thinking that I was going insane. And I don't say that word lightly. I joined a group. I volunteered more. I exercised more. joined a hockey league. I continued to work out a few times a day. I tried everything. Relaxation practices, changing my eating, all of it to to help me to not feel like I was going crazy. I thought I was going crazy to the point that I said to my husband, I think I need to go away for a month to some place in order to get my brain rejigged because I don't know how to deal with what's going on inside me anymore. I am completely at a loss. I've lost hope. I am scared of the future. I'm scared of living like this. I don't want to share how I'm how I'm feeling with others. I don't want to be seen as weak. All those stigmas that, you know, a big part of my advocacy and volunteering is to break down those stigmas. And here I am in the middle of them and scared to tell people because whenever I see friends, you talk about the kids the whole time, talk about what they're doing, um, their career. I mean, you talk about usually superficial things because you can't get down talking about real things. And when you're in a place Um, like I felt I was in, I hibernated and I um, felt it wasn't appropriate to share these things because I thought it made people feel uncomfortable, of which it did. And then if people don't share back what they're going through, I feel stupid. So now is that maybe why you're doing this podcast so that maybe somebody out there doesn't feel alone in this, that that you want to bring light to your journey? Yeah, I want to bring light to it's okay if you're feeling depressed, don't be an idiot like me and just keep it all in because I, um, 
I think that the cancer that was living in with me really fucked up my hormonal balance. And it was an, an estrogen lover. And I think that the, my moods were all over the place. And I was too shame, shame. I felt shame in sharing um, what I was going through. I just want people to know that it's okay to feel like that and get help and never assume that it's just your mental stability or your mental, you know, your mental balance is causing this. Sometimes there's a real physical problem underlying it. And mine got, you know, basically misdiagnosed for probably four years, as long as four years, that cancer is growing inside me. And what I didn't know at the time, which I know now, is that a x-ray would not have shown my cancer, my bone cancer. Um, a mammogram would not have shown my breast cancer because it was behind the muscle. And an MRI to my head wouldn't have shown my tumor on my skull because it's on my skull, which is bone. And all I'm saying is don't be your own advocate. Don't be ashamed of how you feel and how you feel emotionally and physically. And they all are tied together. And don't wait until till I did. And, and it took my back completely collapsing to the point I had to get an ambulance, take me to the hospital, dose me up with so much morphine. You can't even imagine probably over, I don't know if I was taking 50 milligrams a day of hydromorphine to get me out of my ball. Cause I could only be in a ball. Cause I was in so much pain. I was just in a ball must've taken so many drugs. I mean, so many to get me to even lay down. I can't imagine. Um, so that's what it took for them to diagnose me that I had cancer um, that originated from the breast. So basically you're saying, trust your body. Even if the doctors are saying, no, everything seems to be good. We've done all this. If you know in your gut, yeah. just go get help. Yeah. And you pushing. know what? Doctors are amazing. And I have a lot of respect for doctors and they go through many years of schooling. And I would never say that I didn't, in my experience, meet some really smart, amazing people, but nobody knows your body better than you. And, you know, even within the hospital, and I had an amazing hospital with amazing staff. I, I really did. But, you know, they actually sent me home with pneumonia. And I kept saying, you know, I have a shortness of breath. But the answer back was, well, it's probably because you have a tumor on your ribs and it's probably causing that. And I also had some other issues going on, such as really bad, bad, bad constipation while I was in the hospital. So that was also attributed. But I went home actually with pneumonia. So even then I didn't say, hey, I got shortness of breath. Check well, this out. And the day that you were supposed to go home from the hospital the first time, Remember, I walked into the room and I gave you a hug and I was like, she's on fire. And that's the first day that you had a fever and you just laid in bed. Laid in bed the day before they released me and they released me the next day. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they, and the answers to the doctor was, well, sometimes these things happen. And, you know, even for myself as a nurse, I knew something wasn't right. And then it was a couple of days later that you had pneumonia. Like I, I really pushed being like, no, 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 this fever is not coming down. Like we need the doctor in here. And then that's when your your palliative care doctor was like, no, there's pneumonia. Yeah. Yeah. My my home doctor, my yeah. my once I left and I went back home, um, did my palliative care, my actual um family doctor, who's who's new and amazing and she does home visits. I'm very spoiled that way. Um but 
Yeah. Yeah. But as soon as it was diagnosed, you were back in that ambulance again, though. I was back in that ambulance. Cost them money to get me back there to have to deal with the <laughs> pneumonia. And I uh, got to meet a new set of doctors and nurses who were amazing as well. And then uh, back home with, you know, on my antibiotics for... For, for 10 days. I had a lot going on. I had, um, I, I think there's a few things that I want to, um, you know, reduce the stigma on. And one of them is your own mental and physical health. And don't be shy about it. Trust your gut. Keep asking if you don't have a solution. I didn't. And I'm an educated, you know, 47-year-old woman that's run businesses and you think I would have had the confidence. And I didn't. Because I felt like I didn't go to school for that, but I regret that now. Because now I'm living with a cancer that will never be cured. My cancer is something I have to live with and hope that there's enough new pills and <clears throat> treatments come out that can continue to keep me alive. But another stigma I really want to fight is really the stigma of poo. <laughs> yep. A pooping. Yep. constipation it's a big issue out there i had no idea how many people suffer constipation Absolutely. it's oh my god it's one of the biggest issues of elders and i just thought i had no idea and i had to wear diapers obviously for my first five weeks and i mean i loved my diapers i thought they were amazing <laughs> i was just like look i don't have to leave my bed like i just pee and then somebody changes me and i can still just like be in my bed I was like, this is awesome. I mean, I, I, I mean, I would dance around in my diapers and we decorated, Aaron decorated the diapers so they'd be pretty. We didn't use hospital diapers. We used Costco diapers because they were pull-ups easier yes. to get down and get off. Um, because most of my time was spent in pain management and managing my constipation. Um, it was literally probably my constipation. I focus on that 90% of the time and 10% on cancer. It was. And you were on and you're still on several interventions that keep you just going. And you, um, your husband asked the doctor the other day, how long is she going to be on this? And what did your doctor say? Probably forever. The drugs that I'm currently on for pain management will probably be forever and some of the other drugs. Um, and so I have to constantly be managing constipation and constantly be man managing gas. I mean, I just farted all the time in the hospital and anybody that visited, I said, I'm sorry, I fart all the time and it's really celebrated in here and my family loves it when, when I fart. And, um, well, I you just, just, you just pooped with the door open and had a conversation with your mom about how great your poop was. Yes, so that's, yeah, really that's not, true. really not scared of poop. And like my husband would take pictures of my poo to show the nurses and I, I would be like oh my god are you serious don't take he's like yeah yeah they need to see photos and so I got pretty well acquainted with different ways that you um you look at at poo and and how healthy poo is so the one thing I would say to people is like manage your poop you know make sure you're going regularly and make sure it's you know not um, getting anywhere pushed up in there because I had to get x-rays because my poo was so high I thought it was touching my boob. That's how high it was. It kind of looked like it was the way your stomach was distended. Like, yes. It was, it was huge. So I had like huge, huge. huge. I and mean, when you think of like how much poo did Elvis die with in his system, it was like a lot. 100 or 200 pounds of poo or something. So that's the other stigma I hope to manage. It's like um, poo and wearing diapers. What about the other stigma 
of pain medication. Like how many times did you say to me, I'm not a drug addict, I'm not a drug addict. And I, I believed you, but you, you... I felt... I felt guilty taking pain meds. I felt judged taking pain meds. I felt embarrassed taking my pain meds. I, um, although I needed them, I just felt like asking for them was, I don't know, not appropriate. It, it took me a long time, and I'm still fighting with it to get over that. So um, in the hospital, it was very difficult because I would simply just not take my medication. And then we run into huge problems because then I would go into immense pain because without my pain meds, I cannot walk. I cannot move. I mean, the radiation is helping, yes, but at that time, I could not have gotten out of my bed if I didn't have pain meds. And so when I would not take them, I would be in bed and my family would be crushed. Well, you had it in your head that if you got off the pain medication, that you could go home, that you could start this journey, that you could start your chemo. And nobody had really told you in the hospital that that wasn't true. Um, and you had a couple of pain doctors that expected you to stay at a four, your expected pain. Yes, because they do pain levels. What's your pain today? I don't know, five, a six. And whatever your pain level is, how, is how they give you your pain meds. But the, the thing is, is that my... My pain level and your pain level look me very different. So it's it's impossible to measure pain levels. So when they ask that, I'm always curious, okay, well, what do you want me to say? Like, what's the expected response? Um, just tell me the truth. Okay, but what, like, is a, a nine? Like, what, what does everything get me? Tell me what, like, but they can't do it like that. It's not, I want it to be more mathematical than it was. And I wanted it to be more logical than it was. And, and I was subjective. very frustrated um, because I was just like, okay, if I take one more pain med, what does that mean? Does that mean I can now get out of bed? Like it was just very frustrating for me. And I think that was something that I had to teach you is I would kind of watch the way you were walking and the way you were moving. I would say, hey, Carla, like, is your pain starting to get bad? And you're like, actually, yeah, it's starting a little bit. And I'm like, okay, let's get a pain med. And then we, you learned how to manage your pain that way instead of going by this scale that was just, I don't yes. know, I've never had anyone who does not understand the scale. You're like, well, how is your pain? And I'm like, I don't have any pain. Well, how do you think my pain is? I'm like, I'm not you. It's very hard because I have a very high pain threshold, very high. I mean, I lived with this extreme pain for quite a long time. Um, and they, you know, so I've been living with this pain and all of a sudden they want to put me on like, you know, 60 or whatever, 70 milligrams of, of hydromorphine. And I was like, and they did, and I would get all dopey and I hated it. So I'd be like not wanting to take the meds. So I think the biggest thing I, I want to advocate for people to learn out there is that it's okay to take pain meds when you're in pain and do not be afraid to become an addict because I think I mean, I live in that world, so I am afraid of being an addict because I work with addicts. I talk to a lot of addicts. I see how fast it happens. They go from um, being in a hip replacement, taking oxys, to all of a sudden needing oxys for life. So I had a lot of fear of that. But hydromorphine works a little different. Um, it doesn't get you high, which I was a little bit sad about, to be honest. I was like, why? I like, wh where's the high coming? I mean, I just got cancer. Can't you give me something to perk me up? But there was nothing. All it does is if you have pain, it goes there. And if it's too much, um, if it's too much drugs I'm taking, then it just puts me to sleep. So it's a very hard balance to try to figure out how to make it. It's taken us a while to figure yeah. it out. 
And, you know, and I still go without my pain meds. Like today, I haven't taken any extra. And I did radiation this morning. I probably should have, thinking about it now. I know, you've got my brain thinking. I'm like, and I'm like oh, but no. that's okay. I'll get it after we finish <laughs> taping this. But, um, um, but I went, you know, from 50 milligrams of hydromorphine, which is tons. You can't imagine. Now trying to keep it at 15 to 20, depending on the day. As I get more active, I might need more. Uh, but I just don't like being dopey, so it's a really fine balance. So sometimes after I take a main pain med, I will drink a cup of coffee. Um, but I'd say for the stigma of addiction... Um, and for all the people out there that are in chronic pain and there's no solution and they're drug addicts, I get it. And I am sorry if I ever judged that. And uh, you don't deserve to be judged. Living in pain is horrible. Living in pain is debilitating. Um, there's nothing worse than living in pain. And I can live with a 4 out of 10 on my pain scale. And everybody can live with a certain amount of pain, but no one should have to live in pain that they can't manage and they can't function. So it's my big, um, if I didn't say this earlier or understood this earlier, I understand it really well now. Really well. What was your biggest worry about telling your family that you had cancer? You know, that's a really complicated one for me because... Um, I had a secret from them and a secret from everyone outside of my husband and son, and I didn't want anybody to find out. And that secret was so important to me that it actually pushed cancer aside. And I was obsessed with how do I make sure no one finds out about my secret and uh, how do I do this um, by not making it look strange? Because I had a, a medical secret I didn't want anybody to know, and so it meant before we went to see any doctors, because my my dad or my mom would come with us, like very typical, the whole family comes to hear what the doctor's saying, and I would have to try to get to that doctor ahead of time, whether that be a note that I sent through his secretary, whether that be a nurse that I tracked them down, and tell them a piece of information about me that I don't want shared. So anytime I would meet with a doctor, which I probably would meet, met with 12 different doctors, I was so fearful they didn't get the message. And on a few occasions, they revealed my medical secret. And I don't think anybody hurt because nobody reacted. And I was just, I couldn't even focus on them telling me the rest of the meeting about how to handle my cancer because I was so scared of the secret. And I was so scared if the secret came out, how judged I'd be. And that people are going to say, um, I don't know, I just felt embarrassed. And I felt like shallow about my secret and that I had kept it a secret for so long and lied for so long about it. I'm so scared of it being revealed. And and to this day, you know, nobody really knows. I haven't told anyone. I told my parents just last week because I couldn't handle it any longer. And the big reveal is that I had a boob job. Yes, I did. And I had, you know, an A cup that went up to a C cup. And then I gained weight during those two years of feeling shitty about myself and now all of a sudden, before I knew it, all my weight went to my boobs. And I was like this double D and I could, so anytime I had to see friends, I had to like try to wear those boobs that like press down your breasts. Swimming, I'd only wear a Speedo. <laughs> I was obsessed with hiding this secret. And all of a sudden, I have breast cancer. So that's my big reveal. I lied. I'm a horrible person. I feel shame. I do. It's a shameful thing I did. It's shameful that I lied. It's not shameful that I did it because I love my, my boobs. I mean, I hate the fact that my boobs are killing me, my killer boobs. 
but I love my breasts. Um, but I thought I had an easy way out with cancer because I thought, oh my God, breast cancer. They're going to remove my breasts, put in new breasts, and then nobody has to know I ever had, you know, the fake breasts. But then when I went to see, you know, the, the, um, the oncologist uh, said to me, oh, no, no, we won't be doing any breast removal for you because your cancer has spread through your body and it doesn't make any sense to put you under unnecessary surgery to get those tumors. And I was like, well, I don't know if it's so unnecessary. She was like, yeah, it's not, we don't want to put you under that surgery. And here I am going, well, if you have to though, I'm, I'm open to that later. I literally saw it as an out. And I think of all the meetings that I didn't even hear what the doctor was saying because I was like, please don't mention best breast job. Please don't. Because the first thing they ask you is, can you tell us your medical history and what operations you've had? <laughs> so I would like skip it. So that was that. That still is my big reveal now. And, and you know, I and when people would say like, oh, my God, I can't believe that girl got a breast job, I would agree and go, yeah, yeah, I know. And meanwhile, I'm sitting with these fake breasts, but I love my breasts and I'm a huge proponent. If you want to get a breast job, do it. Do I think that my breast caused my cancer? No, because it was behind the muscle. And that's the first question I asked. And they said, no, didn't matter what you had there. You would have got cancer anyways. Cause I wanted to, cause I thought, my God, what happens if my breast job caused my cancer. My husband didn't want me to get a boob job. My son cried when he found out. He thought it was, you know, why would I, why would I want to change my body? And, and, and I always kept thinking like, what type of role model am I playing that I would do something as shallow as getting a breast job? But you know what? Fuck, I love my breasts. They're, they're shitty breasts now because they're full of fucking tumors. Maybe you just love them too much. I just love them too much. I love, 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 love. But yeah, that was my big reveal. That's still a reveal on this podcast because nobody knows except for my parents and my sister and my brother-in-law. So friends, but everybody surprised. suspects because like, how do you like? Everybody has looked at me and thought, "Fuck, her boobs look so big." Like they do look so big because I gained weight and it all went to my boobs. I'm literally a double D, triple D. What am I? I don't know what I am, but do you think I have big boobs? Well, considering that you were an A cup before, absolutely. Right? I mean, absolutely. but do you look never say, "Wow, her boobs look big today in that shirt." No. Yeah, you do. No. Really? No, you look totally proportionate. Okay, think, I'm happy to I, hear that. I think you'd look like when like when Carla says that she has a boob job, it's not that she has like these big stripper boobs. Yeah. It's you're proportionate. You would yeah. I think you wouldn't look as good with an yes. A cup. Like I think you look proportionate. You I look, look proportionate. Good. But sometimes I do look, you know, in the mirror with my blonde hair and my pink hair with my boobs and think, you know what? I could look like an ex-stripper, which is maybe a compliment, right? <laughs> that I could have made money off my my bodacious, beautiful body, my voluptuous curves. You're too smart for that. And I'm too sexy, too sexy with my cancer in me. That makes me extra attractive. Um, but yeah, that was my big secret I was scared of. You mentioned that you had a breast augmentation mm -hmm. um, and you know that that didn't cause your cancer. Yeah. Is there anything that you th would think that would cause your cancer? Like if you could throw a shot in the dark, what would that be? I literally think that I caused the cancer by obsessing about my business. I launched a mobile app, um, two mobile apps actually, and they failed and it completely, it crushed me. It crushed me. I just... I can't get over the failure. I put so much into it and so much effort and time 
and money. And when it didn't work, I was crushed. And I just felt like the biggest loser and the biggest failure. And how could I have been so fucking dumb? You know, I'm better than that. I mean, I was in the mobile industry, tech industry. I was a CEO of a large mobile company that um, had, you know, 2,500 employees and revenues of $500 million a year. So I, I say my ego caused my cancer. I thought I was better than I was. I think the big learning for me was I was only as good as the team I had there. And so sometimes I think I'm not, I can't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't be a small business owner. I sucked. I sucked as an entrepreneur. But I did really well in a corporate environment. But maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. I felt pretty low, pretty low self-esteem. Now, stress can't cause cancer. But like in your mind, do you think that that's a logical reason? No, but I think negative, I think I, I asked it to be brought on because I felt so much shame with my failure. It sounds stupid. Why would you give so much attention to a stupid fucking business? But it was, it's so, I'm embarrassed that it even makes me cry. Like, why isn't the cancer making me crying, you know? But yeah, I just, I, I fucked up. And from that, I thought, okay, I'm just going to go and focus on volunteering and social justice advocacy. And that's where I went next um, after that, which I loved. I mean, I, I've had amazing, amazing experiences working with street kids and kids in the that are in the system, lost in the system. I'm a huge advocate for foster care reform, um, human trafficking. I say I say it many times, it's out of control. I'm a huge advocate for raising awareness for that. Um, so I moved directly from, um, I guess, you know, a CEO entrepreneur, a CEO of a company where I was successful, a tech startup mobile app, which I failed, to a social justice advocate where um, you have to look for very small successes. That's what that taught me. Small successes. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about, and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts. 
including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. And you literally took a bad situation you know you had some lemons and you made lemonade like you've brought so much awareness to street kids to drug addicts to people who society just pushes aside and I I completely admire you for being able to take something so awful to and turn it around into something so wonderful yeah I, w- I was I surprised myself with the type of um joy I felt I love being on the streets. It sounds crazy, but I love being with the teens. Addiction and working with people with addiction do not scare me or make me uncomfortable. There's not very much that makes me uncomfortable anymore, to be honest. I mean, I could pretty much see anything happen um, and not be very shocked. I mean, outside of maybe a murder happening in front of me, that would kind of... I think that would fuck me up. Yeah, that would fuck me up for sure. But I do feel that working... They gave me more back than I gave them is how I felt doing all the volunteering and and the charitable contributions. I really do feel like I sometimes feel sick that I can't, couldn't have done more. So in some ways, in the social disadvocacy sounds crazy, I felt like kind of like a failure again. I felt like I'm not in a position where I can make change, and that frustrated me. But I do believe that any person can make any small change. Like if you yeah. just broke through to one person, then... It was all worth it. It doesn't have to be on a millions of scales. I know, and I wanted person. to believe that theory, but I couldn't. I was like, the foster kid situation is so fucked up. Why is nobody why why is nobody in panic mode right now? Like people are talking about kids all around the world that are starving or issues facing them. We have our own. Like it would just frustrate me. I'm like, I don't know how I don't know how to get out two messages. Our foster care system's fucked up. We shouldn't have human trafficking in this country, in our neighborhoods. And you know what? 80% of kids that are trafficked come from the foster care system. Start with the foster care system. Clean that up. You know, figure out how to, you know, not disappoint these kids. I mean, that's what we continue to do. So that that advocacy got me so frustrated. And I think also aided to just that my negative attitude of like, how can change happen if people aren't listening. People are living in their nice little fancy houses. And I also found that hard to also um, socialize and and talk about um, things that I thought weren't changing, you know, things that were important to me. And that's so like egotistical of me to think that I should think that anybody should care what I care about. Um, but it was like a frustration I had. But it's hard to go to a fancy gala that's, you know, $500 a plate and and rub elbows with all these fancy people. And knowing that there's some kid on the street yeah, I, I that's found that's, been abused. Yeah. Like it's, it, it would be And I know those fancy galas help. It's just not my style. And, and I was frustrated. And I didn't know how to communicate well enough, obviously, for people to go, whoa, this is 
this wow how how can we make how can we help make change or how can we support the organizations that are trying to make change because I probably didn't do a uh, I see this me not doing a good enough in raising awareness, which is just you know another thing that I think perhaps caused the cancer. So just more stress. Yeah. You know, and I'm being honest here. I'm not lying. Like, I, I could be more funny or I could, like, kind of hide shit and all that stuff. But you know what? I got stage four. I got fucking tumors throughout my entire body. I have so many tumors in my spine, they can't even count them. So, like, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. You're listening to My Boobs Are Trying to Kill Me, a stand-up speak-up podcast featuring Carla Stevens-Tolstoy as she is interviewed by Aaron DeYoung talking about her own personal battle with stage four cancer. Before we listen to the second half of the show, I want to take a moment to think about what Carla said earlier on her desire to fight stigmas. As she mentioned, she kept her debilitating illness and previous medical procedures to herself. And since her cancer diagnosis, she has continued her giving ways to battling stigmas, including some of the ones she is personally facing. That brings me to thinking about one of the collections at Stand Up Speak Up Apparel. Items such as the Eliminate Stigma Collection. You'll find teas with life-affirming good vibe thoughts such as My Demons Do Not Define Me, Destroy What Destroys You, Tune Out the Noise, and Beautiful Chaos, just to name a few. That's the Eliminate Stigma Collection. You can visit online at StandUpSpeakUpApparel.com. Before we get back to Carla talking about her cancer with her nurse, Erin DeYoung, first, let's hear a bit about Carla's actual diagnosis. Just before recording the interview for this podcast, Carla spoke with her radiologist, Dr. Andrew Chiang, from the Peel Regional Cancer Center of Credit Valley Hospital in Mississauga, Ontario. And Carla being Carla, well, she recorded that too. With your metastatic breast cancer, so it started originally in your breasts and it spread to multiple spots, okay? Most of the bulk of the disease is in the bones, so a lot of it is along the spine itself. Um, you do have a couple of areas in the pelvis. We do know that there's a spot in your uh, upper right arm, your right ribs, okay? And some several spots in your liver as well. So we've targeted at least six areas. So the first time that we saw you, we treated your arm, your rib, and your thoracic spine. This second time around, we're treating your neck and your pelvis and the lower part of your back as well. And how many tumors do you think there could be in my neck? So usually they don't quantify the amount when they read the report, usually because it's innumerable, okay? So it's just too many to count. It's too many to it's count. too many to count, okay? Because it's just, it's, it's just through the whole neck. It's through the whole neck. So I would say that uh, where your cancer is, it's in the bones and it's in the liver. The predominance of your disease, though, is along the spine. So basically from top to bottom. So that would, that's, would pre prevent me from doing... That's why it was hard for me to do any sports. Or I would imagine. There was, or... Exactly, exactly. Because basically the, the, the cancer that's in the bones, it affects the integrity of the bones, right? So your stability is off. It causes pain. So, and I mean, and there's a resultant effect on the muscles as well, right? So that's probably what was keeping because, me... Because, you know, my neck was unbearable for three years. Like, I, I'm talking unbearable, and I would do everything. Acupuncture, masseuse, um, yoga, stretching, chiro like everything you could imagine, yeah. I did. And uh, I mean, Al knows how much was I complaining about my neck. 
the shoulder. Yeah, like, so perhaps part of that was due to yeah, the and that's going to be at least three years. Yeah. Three years. So there would be just too many tumors throughout my spine, even. That's right. So part of the your, your treatment, so the systemic treatments that you're on, the drug therapies, they will yes. treat your entire body. Yes. The radiation, because it's more localized, is really reserved for areas that are more symptomatic. So if you're okay. trying to have more pain or other types of symptoms, we we can, we can target it with radiation. That's not a problem. We can oftentimes even retreat areas. So even if you've had radiation in the past, we can sometimes do it again. So do you think you can do my my back again, the thoracic again, because it still does hurt. Yeah, so right now, because it's been so soon since your last one, we okay. probably want to give it a little bit of time. Like two months or three months? Usually I, I prefer to wait about six months, but yeah, somewhere between three to six months okay. is that what you're looking for at least before you want to jump in. And, because and that's still quite pain. I'm looking forward to the neck because my neck is constant. Yeah, so constant I think you should pain. probably notice some good improvement in the neck as well with time now. So uh, the pain, the, the radiation that we give helps with the underlying cancer. It doesn't help with the, the uh, mechanical pain, right? So the, the broken bone, it, it doesn't help with that. But we do know that with the radiation, with a little bit of time, usually on a scale of months, there is some reossification of the bone. So you, you deposit more bone to strengthen it and maybe get rid of the, the mechanical element uh, with time. How did that make you feel yesterday when you heard the doctor say to you, "Yeah, you have innumerable... Yeah tumors in your like in your um your neck like we thought we were dealing with one but how did that make you feel when you found out there was too many to count well it made more sense to me because i i couldn't believe that one tumor in my neck could cause that much pain and that five tumors in my spine could cause that much pain and nobody had really told me much i asked all the time in the hospital i was obsessed with people telling me where the tumors are. I mean, as you know, I bought, a, I bought like, I mean, think what arrived today in the mail? A anatomy section. An anatomy set of a head. Now we have heads, hearts, stomachs. Yes, because I am determined to learn the body because I feel like nobody was being straight with me. How many tumors do I have? Just fucking tell me. It went from five the first day to eight, 10 to 12 to, I don't know, maybe 15 to actually we have no idea how many tumors because there's way too many to count. And I'm like, you know what? I can handle that. I've been asking for that since, you know, since I found out about this. Like, And maybe they didn't know the answer. Maybe the only person that knew was the radiologist. Um, but now that I know what I have, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not playing any games. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sit here and just you know, be careful with everything I say, because I'm at a different stage in my life right now. And I'm doing this podcast because I don't want, I want people to be comfortable talking about uncomfortable topics, no matter what they are. And whether that's cancer, whether that's human trafficking, whether that's foster care form, whether that's getting a fucking boob job or a facelift. I haven't got a facelift, but I'm not opposed to that. But I probably can't now with all my medical stuff. Now, how do you feel about getting old? so funny I used to say oh god I don't look forward to getting old I don't want to get all yucky and wrinkly and now oh shit I hope I get old I can't wait to get all wrinkly and old and seeing you know grandkids if, if that should happen um being able to steal stuff from stores and pretend that you're just like senile senile <laughs> yes I just I want to be old so badly so badly that for me I'm like okay I'm turning, you know, 50 next year. Okay, God, what does it take to make it to 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56? How do I make it up to 70? You know, it hasn't been done yet. 
You know, the first woman to, with my same condition made it to 20, only one. How can I do the impossible? What new things are going to come out? I'm obsessed. I'm like, yes, I want to be 80. Get me to 70. You know, at this point, get me to fucking 60. And, and who do I want to be for the next while will I fight this cancer? And what do I want to accomplish? I really, um, I don't know the answers to those. I'm still working that out. I don't know. This podcast is a start. Like, really, this is, I guess, a selfish way for me to be forced based on a schedule to have to figure out why the fuck did I get cancer? What, what, am, what, am, I, what am I supposed to do to better the world through my cancer? So a lot of times you have people saying with cancer, oh, be strong, fight this, you're brave, you're this, you're that. How do you feel when people ask you to be strong? I don't know, actually. Are you strong? Yes, I'm strong. Um, I'm going to put my all into this. When people say be strong, yeah, I guess it's a nice encouragement. It's their way of saying, I love you. Push through this. I take it as um, as a phrase of like love almost. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I really am. I, I think I am strong. I try to be strong. But, you know, I, I am structured in my in my strength. And I know that sounds kind of strange to hear it like that, but I have my times where I do have my, um, you know, mini breakdowns. And that usually happens in the shower. So the shower is my time. So sometimes in there, I will just cry. But then I get it together. And we get back out. You and I feel pretty good. All the time. No. Like it just, it's impossible. But I generally feel pretty good. It's so weird, you know, as soon as I got my diagnosis, I said to the uh, the doctor, okay, I want to start getting off my antidepressants and my other drugs I've been having the last few years. And so they did take me off most of them, but they did keep one of the antidepressants because they thought I might need it now. <laughs> so I still have my, um, I think it's my Effexor, right? Yep. Like, But it's like a 75 milligram, not that yep. much. Anyways, the other thing is people don't know is that I've been pushed, induced through menopause. Um, because I can't go on my chemo pills until I finish menopause. And I haven't started menopause. So they give you a needle and you basically start that day in menopause. Well, because they need to get rid of the estrogen in your body. They need body. to get rid of the estrogen in my body. And um, because estrogen is what my body loves right now because of the cancer. So we don't want to feed it. Like as I said earlier, it's like feeding a drug addict, their favorite drug, drug of choice. So that's been crazy because not only did I hear about cancer induced into menopause, um, just a lot happening. I also like cut my hair all short um, while I was in the hospital. That was like a very spontaneous thing. I was like, fuck it. I'm so sick of styling this bitch <laughs> and doing all the work. I'm like, cut this baby off. So I have um, short hair, which Aaron braids a little piece of it every day. And I have pink in it. So it's kind of cute. You can see my pictures on my blog. Now there is, we do talk about cancer perks and one of the perks that we were talking about was your friends and family. Can you tell yeah. me how, the, how oh, yeah, cancer has affected, how, how it's oh, affected your family? Well, my parents moved in, which for me is an amazing perk. Um, 
And I think my husband appreciates my parents being there. I think my son, Zach's, had to adjust to it. We've also had the lady that um, used to help us uh, with the dogs, um, Anna. Um, she moved in full time as well. So there was lots of support for me because they've uh, we've retrofitted our gym to be a bedroom for me with a hospital bed. And it's, it's, qu- it's quite swanky, I might say. You can see um, videos and pictures on my blog as well. So, so them moving has changed a lot. I mean, we've got three generations of go under, under one roof. Everybody has their roles. My mom takes care of all my nutrition, which is a huge task, making sure that I only eat the proper meals. I eat no food that has any estrogen in it. And there's so many food products that have estrogen um, and everything pure. I don't drink tap water. I drink pure water that they have to find way out in the country. Any of my meats or anything come from a uh, organic farm where the animals are right there and you can see them, but I don't, I don't eat much meat. I, I have more fish. Um, but my mom takes care of all that, which is really a lot. And she's 80 years old and she's having, you know, that's a lot of work. Anna takes care of all the dogs and health and just, just takes care of my mom because my mom's really messy and my husband's really tidy. And my mom like makes a huge mess everywhere she goes. And so Anna just like picks up after her and Anna's Portuguese. So she's hilarious. The two of them are quite the team. You think they're fighting, but they both talk really loud. They're just having a conversation. Well, I always say it's like watching a sitcom when I see the two of them together. Oh my God. They are hilarious. Right. And uh, we have a lot of dogs. So we have our dog, uh, Nucky, which is a great Dane. We have her rescue, Coco, which she's still like 100, and 100 pounds. And then we have our little dogs, and that unfortunately is, is sick right now and in, in palliative care himself, which is a little bit stressful for my seven-year-old son, who, who's really his dog. That's That's been very sad to have to go through that coincide with mine. And we have Anna's Chihuahua that you literally cannot touch, and it will like bite your head off. You cannot touch it. Well, Chico likes me. Just. But have you ever touched Chico? Yeah, when he got tangled in the wires the other day. That's true, but you when never I came, pet Chico. No, when I came in the other day, I gave him a pat, and I'm like, oh, no, I can't touch him. And he yeah. just sat there and looked at me. I'm like, okay, Yeah, good. he's like, I don't, like, I'm like, Anna, I don't understand how you have a dog that doesn't let people touch them. Like, was this a rescue dog? No, I got him at birth. I'm like. He's just, he. He is like a really dog. odd dog. It's so cute. And uh, so we have all that on top of it. And what everybody barks dad? all the time. And then. What about your dad? What is your amazing father? Oh, and do? then my dad. My dad's amazing. He basically sits with me in my room all day while I'm in there. Um, and then him and I go for a walk. Sometimes Al comes. Sometimes we could take a dog if Al comes. Um, he sleeps with me every night beside me. Um, so usually we talk before bed. I'll ask him to tell me a story. If I'm not feeling good, I'll say, Dad, tell me the story. And what's hilarious is the stories he tells me are like, <laughs> the other day I said, Dad, tell me a story. He's like, okay, I'm going to tell you a story about Simons. It's a new massive retailer from Quebec. <laughs> He's talking like it's a fairy tale. And it got started by, you know, and then he goes in to tell me how they just launched their operation at Square One. And, uh, you know, and what a success this this anchor story is. And I'm like, I've never heard of Simons. He's like, how could you never heard of Simons? I'm like, I don't know. And then of course, in the middle of the night, instead of me getting to sleep, what do you think I do? I get up and start looking through my iPad and looking at what's available to buy. But it's really expensive, FYI. I was like, dad, these shirts are like 400 bucks. But apparently it does really well. It's an amazing customer experience. But so, or he'll tell me about, um, you know, 
the Roman Empire, or it'll tell me about um, a big Canadian company and how they've expanded or how they went bankrupt or, you know, so it's interesting because he, he comes from business and I love business. So those are like his fairy tales, but he's been amazing. But I'm so worried that he gets so much credit that my mom doesn't get as much credit that I'm so afraid of hurting her feelings. So I want to see they're equally as amazing and they're equally as needed because my mom wants to leave my house more than my dad does. She likes going back to her house, which I try to not let her. <laughs> sort of barricading the door. <laughs> yes. I let them go home one night a week. However, she does have everything absolutely set up for you that it's, Erin, you need to give lunch and this yeah. is for lunch. And so everything is like so laid out for me. So even me as a nurse, yeah. that is so helpful that your mom and your dad are around. Oh, around, right? Yeah. And they're there and... And then Zach, my 17-year-old, who's my um, my everything, my pride, my joy, he's got the best of me and the best of Al. And, and I, you know, he's just so unbelievably, uh, I just love him so much. You know, my biggest fear is um, that I won't see him grow up and I won't see his kids. And if he t chooses to have kids, you know, um, that's my biggest fear. I, I... I don't want to miss out on anything that happens in Zach's life. I want to be an active participant in it. And that's probably what makes me sad. And I also have two step boys. And they haven't produced any grandchildren for me yet, but you never know. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. <laughs> They'll be so mad. They'd be like, wow, my God, that's so rude of her. Um, and they're both lovely, and I, and I love them. And, and I'd like to see how their life unfolds and be a participant in that. And, and of course, all my nieces and nephews who I adore and my family and my friends and, and my husband, who's my rock, my husband, who I, I, I can't think of somebody better. You know, he just is amazing to me. He's, my husband's not the type that's going to tell me he loves me. My husband's not the type that's going to sit there and, and, and cuddle me and, and soothe me and say it's going to be all right. He is an, a man of action. He's task man. Absolutely. So, you know. But love is an action. That's love, right. Love's not a word that you just say, I love you. Like, love is an action. And he, out of any husband I've ever seen. Right. Just is, goes into He action. just does it. Like, he is the protector. He is. He, he manages all the, like, all the doctor's appointments. Absolutely. He manages, you know, all the calendar, which is crazy. Um, and he, he never, ever expects me not to put my full head in the game. And, and if I, if I'm not, if I, he thinks I'm not there strong enough, he'll just say, come on, get in the game. Come on, get, get focused. We got, we got to, we got to beat this, this horrible disease, not beat it, but learn to live with it. And my husband, he, um, and he's older. So I make this big job. My husband's quite a bit older. He's, he's. My husband's 72 and I'm 40, turning 50. You're not turning 50. You're only turning 49. 49 Why the fuck did I weeks. say that? I know. See, oh my God, menopause. Dumb. Yeah, I don't know if it's dumb, but it's it's definitely a brain blip. Blame brain blip. Okay, so anyways, and he's 72. And so I always make this joke that like his second wife is going to be much older and less complicated. Um, because poor him, I mean, he marries a younger wife and I had a stroke when I was... 30 with with my first son in first trimester um and then I had this crazy disease fungus called blastomycosis um when I was in my 40s <laughs> when I, so 30s 
and then 40s, and just going into my 50s, I have cancer. So this guy must be thinking, what was I thinking? I thought, you know, she'd be taking care of me, and it's definitely the reverse. I mean, and some of the things, you know, you think, you know, like my husband, he has to, like, do, like, not comfortable things with me. He has to, like, wipe my ass. Like, <laughs> you know, when he showers me, he doesn't shower me as nice as Aaron, you know. But the intimacy is at a very different intimacy level. He's also a caregiver. The reason why we have Aaron and, and nurses next door, which are amazing, so that he doesn't become a caregiver and stop being a husband. So he can be a care partner yes. instead of the caregiver. Yes, and we didn't want that to happen. So we just said at the very beginning, let's get somebody in um, so it's not all on his shoulders or on my dad's shoulder, on my mom's shoulders, you know. And then heaven opened up and plunked Aaron. That's right. Right in your life. And I was oh. like, oh my God, Aaron, you're like a nurse. <laughs> I'm not like a nurse. And also, nurse. yeah. <laughs> I am a nurse. <laughs> a nurse and such a fun person all rolled into one. This is awesome. I know. It's killing me having to be like serious in this. I feel like so I know. I know. Right I'm like, oh, there are some serious well, conversations. Just, just, just so everybody knows, like, we're not serious like this every no. day. Like, we actually laugh a lot. Yeah. And we have fun and we record silly recordings and we do silly things. And, you know, this has been really serious for the both of us. We this is not our, t we, like, we it's talked about this in the shower, maybe. <laughs> it's about time that we broke. We yes. <laughs> yeah, like, this is, like, too serious. But I can tell a funny story about my dad. He was sleeping with me at the hospital, and uh, I had taken so many laxatives at this point. And when I got oh, to the bathroom, I didn't make it. But it was, like, everywhere. Oh, no, you it was an explosion. I was like, oh, my God. And so... My dad's like, are you okay in there? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, don't worry. But I didn't have like a mop or towels with me. And I'm like, dad, can you go? Uh... I didn't even want the nurse to see it because I was too embarrassed. So I said, dad, can you just go outside in the hallway and get some towels? And he's like, what happened in there? And I'm like, oh, dad, you don't want to know. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to know. <laughs> I said, just throw me towels, go find a mop. And then the nurse came when it was like mostly 90% cleaned up and helped me. But I... I was just like, but if that was Al that was there, he'd be right in there cleaning up with a mop, right? He would. Oh, my God. So that was like, and I peed my pants quite often. That's another crazy thing that I'll say to my parents. I'll be like, oh, shit, I think I peed my, oops, yeah, I did. I have to go to the bathroom now when I was trying to be without my diaper for a bit. But I don't wear my diaper now. But also, you're on a lot less pain medication. Yes, yes. So I think that's been the difference. So I don't wear a diaper. No. But I did wear a diaper last night in bed because I wasn't sure with all the medications if yeah. something happened, like because of the radio radiation. And, sometimes and they say okay, in the right? pelvic, you can have explosions. Yeah, let's like, avoid those. <laughs> Radioactive explosions. So I did wear a diaper. Wow, that sounds like the worst superhero name. Ever. Radioactive, Radioactive explosion. explosion What's your poo. superpower? <laughs> so true. Later in the conversation, Carla also touched on the cost of having cancer and the fact that she feels lucky that the financial burden is just one less thing that she has to worry about. She was also thankful for her friends and family. I'm fortunate in a lot of ways. I've worked really hard um, in my career. My husband has worked really hard and we've been able to, you know, put aside money for situations like this. However, this is a very expensive disease to get. I mean, initially, my 
medication that I'm going on in January, which is, it's not a trial drug, it's, but it's only been in um, available for less than a year. And it's just for people just like me, stage four breast cancer that has spread to other parts of the body. And it costs 8200 a month uh, Canadian. So for Americans, that's like a dollar. No, just kidding. For Americans, <laughs> that's like maybe 7000 It depends. Whatever it depends. You have to look it up. But, um, and well, for Americans right now, they'd be saying, well, who, who would pay for that? Wouldn't, like, because they're not used to having our health care. But health care does not pay for that kind of drug. But Pfizer um, agreed to pay for it, as, you know, and they got all of my data, which I'm happy to give. Because 8200 and let's say I'm on that for two years or three years, looking at a lot of money. My, my, my meds, my, t- my just daily meds, cost about 1000 a month, would you say, Erin? About that. And that's one of like the downfalls of having your own business and being your own entrepreneur. Yeah, I don't have any health care. You don't have a health care. I mean, I have the government health care, which pays yes. for everything. It's not like... Um, but it doesn't pay for... It's not like Americans. Your, it doesn't pay for your, your regular medications like yes no. you get your you get your hospital stay, stays covered yes. and everything under OHIP yes but you still have to pay for your hydromorphone or your synthroid or your panelog just anything that you're on like that's true that's covered. correct and anything that's maybe trial or a little bit um out of what normal what other people would get like the one I'm getting um but we get our chemo for free like t- traditional um chemotherapy, the intravenous chemotherapy, radiation we get for free. It's pretty amazing. It's not technically free because we do pay for it in our astronomical taxes. taxes. Yes, that's true. But it's kind of like I can't imagine what that would cost me in the States. It would be bankrupt. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to afford it. People have to sell their houses in the States. They have to do every. I mean, I. For bankruptcy. Yeah. And when I, I think of that probably every single time I'm in treatment, I think about people in other parts of the world that do not have free health care. And it makes me feel sick to my stomach because I think, oh, God, that's so unfair because um, everybody should have access, I believe, to free health care. And, ha- you know, it's just, uh, but anyways, that's a personal thing. The other thing I should really talk about, though, is the love and support from all my friends and the ones that come regularly to see me and not just in person, but you make point of texting me or sending me cute videos. I just love it. I, I can't get enough of the love. It just makes me stronger. You know, my, my Oscarachi family, which is the company that I was, I was part of in the Czech Republic that I was lucky enough to be called their chief Oscarachi officer <laughs> was my name. Um, the outpouring of love from them. I, I almost felt guilty accepting it. I just felt like, I don't know if I'm deserving of all, am I deserving of all this love from you people? Like, you know, I wasn't always perfect, you know, because I, I reflect. Instead of me reflecting and thinking of all the great stuff we did, I reflect and sometimes think, oh, I could have done better. You know, why did I, why did I get angry? You know, why was I sometimes a bitch? Why was I sometimes so demanding? You had to be. You are in charge of a company. Yeah, but I think and I you could... can't be nicey-nice being in charge yeah. of a company. I know, but I, I could have done it differently sometimes. I feel like I've sent some people that could be having to go through post-stress traumatic disorder treatment. Like, I should probably have that set up for Oscar Rachis. Um <laughs> Literally. Like, I just feel like, oh, was I sometimes shitty? And then I think, like, that was just inexperience. And that was me not having 
experienced kind of a life of more compassion, I guess, because I think my volunteering changed me a lot more than I thought it did. Well, your eyes are opened a little bit. Yeah, and I can't close them now. Like you, you were, you had told me at one point that, you know, my life wasn't so bad. Like it was good. My parents loved me. Yeah. There was lots of love going around. You know, we, we didn't financially struggle. And you even said to me, like, I feel guilty that I had such a good life. I know. And that's, know. it's not like that's, that's a huge testimony. Well, I feel guilty that. that I'm, I feel guilty about a lot of things. I feel guilty. I have such amazing family. I feel guilty about how strong my support system is for cancer and that other people don't get it. I, I mean, you know, Erin, I talk about that all the time. Like even every day I probably say it to my family, oh, I'm so lucky. And, you know, oh gosh, I hope how do, you know, people don't have the same support I do. And, and I just feel like I have been given so opportune, so many opportunities in my life and so many good things have happened to me in my life that, number one, I should never pass judgment. Number two, I should show compassion always. And number three, I should do good. And maybe that's something that when you're done, you're beating cancer, that you can actually be there for some of those people that don't have anyone. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where that road's going to like travel. I don't. That's the exciting part about this. Yeah, though. it is. But I'm, I'm, I'm still, still stuck on the old road of like the foster kids and. Yeah. But sometimes in life. Traffic like, victims. I mean, traffic victims just, oh, fuck, I just want to like, uh murder every John that goes to. Anyways. Well, that I, doesn't solve anything. I know that doesn't solve anything. So you have your own store um, with the Stand Up Speak Up. Yeah. But what have you done personally for you as your little gift to yourself? Well, I have a store that my son and I have, and I also have some great support behind that. Paula, Jess, Denny, big shout out to them. They're amazing. I couldn't do it without them. Like literally, I love them. And I say that, and I say that truthfully and honestly, because right now I'm in stage four <laughs> cancer. Um, and we have created these amazing designs that help raise awareness of social justice issues and very provocative. Um, and we do a lot of good with these clothes. So I recommend anyone go out there and log on, look, you know, anything you buy goes back to helping someone and we make sure it goes back to a group that needs it or an individual. I usually handpick where we put it. So all of you that know me personally know that I would put a lot of care into that and I would make sure the money goes to the right place. Um, so you should check out our store because it's got great stuff and uh, it's all about giving back, giving forward. And if you haven't already, you should do that. I mean, fuck, I'm at stage four and you still haven't checked out my store? Well, <laughs> there you go, playing that cancer card again. <laughs> now, but, but what have you done for yourself? <laughs> anyways, so because I have a store, I was selfish and I designed with Daddy, who's amazing, plug, plug, um, a breast cancer line just for me. Um, we're not selling it. Uh, it's just for me. So when I go to do any of my treatments, I am wearing lots of pink. Like Pepto pink. Like oh, yeah. Comes down like I have always. hoodies with pink. I have hats that we've designed, yoga leggings, um, sweat, sweat joggers, um, T-shirts. We, I mean, really. I, I have um, lunch box for when I go to treatments and I bring like my mom packs me a lunch plus uh, a purse to carry all my stuff in, cosmetic bag. Um, I've designed a whole kind of breast cancer just for me 
Um, so I feel like when I show up, you show up. Loud I'm fucking and pink. pink. I am pink, and I got pink in my hair because you know this. I'm I'm treating this like this is like the hugest project of my life. It kind of is. Yeah. I mean, this is going to be the hardest thing I've ever done. And uh, I got the right team. I got the right stuff, baby. Oh, oh, <laughs> I got the oh, right nurse. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I got the right nurse. I got the right doctors. I got the right treatment plans. I, I mean, I got it all right now. And if I fuck this up, it's on me. Literally. Because Man. this is, I feel like I have... I have to win this one. Yeah, it's kind of an important one. This is an important one. And I just want to give a big shout out to all my friends and family and all of you, Oscar and even, you know, for your love it has meant more to me than you can you can't even I mean I you can't imagine it what you guys did for me is priceless. I mean everything from the videos and to Mario and Fran and and my executives and Fred coming out to see me personally. I mean, everything has been amazing. You have shown so much love. And to my friends and to all my family and to everyone from high school and from university and people I met along the way in my journey. I mean, I can't, like, I don't even know how to express this. People made videos about, people got 40 people together and did a video. Um, people flew from different parts of the world to come see me. Um, gifts. People are sending you gifts. All the time. People um, who don't even know you come over and yeah, make Yeah, people that don't even know me come over and make soup. That's right, Linda, who makes her broth soup. I mean, I, the people I, you know, I've met on this journey, the kindness and the love is unbelievable. And I, in my book of Messages of Hope... We're now on, and it's been, I know, I guess two months, right? We probably have 600 messages now. Um, and people are sharing with me even the fact that they've had cancer and they're too embarrassed to talk about it. I just got that today. It's crazy. Um, and so the fact that I'm willing to talk about this so openly and share so much openly and share secrets and share how I'm feeling, I guess. But for me, what have I got to lose? Like, fuck. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. I got nothing to lose. I got only shit to gain right now. That's Carla Stevens Tolstoy talking about her fight with cancer. She was in conversation with her nurse, Erin DeYoung. As Carla mentioned, she is getting a lot of love and support on her blog, on Facebook, and other social media, and she appreciates it very much. You can also follow her journey online via a series of blogs and videos that she shares, which runs the gamut of themes and emotions along her cancer journey, from the serious, to the whimsical, to the downright silly, and everything else in between. Just go to StandUpSpeakUpApparel.com and follow the links to her blog. She'd love to hear from you. Let Carla know you're rooting for her. Send her a message or video and show your support for her and her causes by making a purchase at StandUpSpeakUpApparel.com. All proceeds of your purchase go to causes Carla cares and talks about. It is her personal passion project, and with her current focus on her cancer, the only way to keep it going and helping others is via sales. So continue to help Carla help others. 
Buy from the store to help raise awareness for causes that people are uncomfortable talking about. Also, message Carla on Facebook or email at carla.tolstoy at standupspeakup.ca. That's carla.tolstoy at standupspeakup.ca. And ask her which store items she recommends just for you and your areas of discomfort. And that's it for this edition of My Boobs Are Trying to Kill Me, a stand-up speak-up podcast. I'm your guest host, Peter Anthony Holder. Thanks for joining us. Find us online at standupspeakupapparel.com. And if you have a moment, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network.